The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is Genesis 43. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. 
I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. The word of God for the people of God. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's good to be with all of you this morning. If we haven't gotten the chance to meet yet, my name's Aaron, and I have the joy of getting to be a part of the team here at Quorum Dale, serving as a teaching pastor here. It's so good to be with all of you uh, this morning as we Look at this text here in uh, Genesis 43, uh, here in a moment. Uh, it's one of those things, kind of living here, getting used to, is that yesterday I was in a t-shirt and I was warm, like genuinely warm yesterday. And we were out at the park, had a great time outside. Case and I set up this little like, I don't know what you call it, it's kind of like a zip line-ish monkey bar thing between two trees in our backyard and had a lot of fun just uh, being outside and then woke up this morning and was shoveling my driveway at 6 a.m. So I guess that's part of the deal. We were told that when we were kind of coming here. We visited a few months ago uh, for our first time, and someone gave us like this, that's like a bumper sticker or a sticker you put on your water bottle that has like the days of the week and then like the weather, and it's like completely drastically shifts from day to day. So it was like sunny and 70 and then negative 20 and then windy and storm, all that. So we're experiencing that. We're adjusting. We're getting used to it. We're having a great time um, with all of that. But as we're thinking about this story uh, here in uh, Genesis 43, I'm going to start with this. A few, about a year ago, a year and a half ago, I was grocery shopping for our family. And actually, in California, I did kind of a lot of our grocery shopping at Trader Joe's on Fridays when I had uh, some time off. And at this point, about a year and a half ago, I mean, I was getting really good at grocery shopping. I mean, I was like a skill that I was perfecting, becoming very efficient at it. You know, growing up, my parents and I would watch, I don't know if you guys remember this TV show, Supermarket Sweep. Anybody, right? And like, how fast can you get your groceries done? It was kind of the game I would play uh, grocery shopping. But when I first started, like actually, you know, doing the grocery shopping, there was this running joke between Cheyenne and I, my wife, of how many times is Aaron going to call with like a question, 
right? Of like, you know, what is this spice? What's arugula, baby? Like all these different things you have to learn as you're growing and going on this journey of becoming a novice grocery shopper to someone who can do it with, you know, efficiency and skill. But a year and a half ago, I was just becoming really confident in my ability to get this done as fast as I could. And so one of the things that was on the list was lemon juice. And I'm going through the produce aisle and not seeing lemon juice at all. I see a bunch of lemons, but no lemon juice. And so me and kind of my brain just wanting to get it done as fast as possible, like, oh, there's no lemon juice. We'll be fine. We'll figure it out. There's plenty of lemons. We don't need lemons. Cheyenne asked for lemon juice. That was what was on the list. And so I didn't get any lemons. A couple days later, <laughs> we're sitting there in the kitchen cooking, getting ready. And Cheyenne, you know, is so sweet. Goes, you know, Aaron, where's, where's the lemons? And I go, we don't, we didn't, you didn't ask for lemons. You asked for lemon juice. And the reason I, I thought, like, you know, what we needed was lemon juice specifically is because growing up, one of my first jobs, I worked in the produce department at a grocery store, and we stocked lemon juice bottles. And so that's what I was thinking we were going to, you know, get. But the, the, the whole thing is that instead of me asking, like, questions, instead of me, like, calling Cheyenne in that moment and being like, hey, is this what you need? Is this what, like, I just thought I was just going to go through this thing, not have to ask any questions. And I say that because anytime that you're like learning something new or on a journey or developing a new skill or going from point A to point B, one of the most, I think, wise things to do is just ask really good questions along the way. Ask questions as you seek to learn and to grow. Ask lessons or questions as you seek to learn a new lesson. Ask good questions as you are on a journey of any sort of kind. And I don't know if you noticed that as we heard this text read here in Genesis 43, there's, in many ways, this journey that's happening in the narrative flow of the text. The text starts with the family in a place of famine, but it ends with them feasting in the presence of Joseph. From famine to feast. That's kind of the narrative arc of this story. And what this story is trying to communicate to us is actually, this is the work that God is not only doing in the lives of Joseph and his family, taking them from famine to feast, but this is the journey, this is the, the, the journey of transformation that God wants to do in your life and in my life, taking us from places of famine to places of feasting. And in order to kind of go on this journey together, one thing I want us to do as we look at this text is ask some really good questions of the task. Ask some questions asking, how is God doing this? Why is God doing this? What is required for us to experience this transformation of taking us from famine to feast? And we're going to see this in this passage as we ask some questions. Now, the first question I want us to ask is simply this. What hinders you? What hinders you from truly experiencing the journey of transformation God wants to take you on from going from places of famine to a place of feasting in his presence? What hinders you? Often, what hinders us from experiencing the work that God wants to do in, in our lives is those things that we want to hold on to, those things that we think we need, the things that we think we have to have to hold them in self-preservation because if we don't have this one thing or this one item or this one circumstance, then we're not actually going to experience what God has. Like Jacob. See, Jacob in our story, and we've mentioned this before, Jacob's in this pattern, in this habit of having this, this pattern of favoritism towards one of his sons, in particular now, Benjamin. And this habit of favoritism is hindering Jacob. It's hindering actually the whole family from experiencing the work that God wants to do. Take a look at verse 7 with me. Jacob speaking here to Judah says, 
why did you treat me so badly? By telling the man, referring to Joseph, who they don't know who it is, by telling the man whether you still had another brother. I mean, in context, Jacob is complaining and revealing that, hey, why did you mention to that man in Egypt that, we had a, that you had a younger brother? Why did you kind of spill the beans in a sense? Because Jacob's revealing his own heart here, that he wants to preserve, he wants to hold on to his favorite son. He believes that as long as he can hold Benjamin, that's the most important thing, that that's what's really needed for him in this moment. But this pattern, this habit of favoritism, of clinging to a favorite son, is hindering the work that God wants to do in this family. This, this kind of habit that Jacob has formed over the course of many years has transformed not only his family, but himself primarily. That Jacob now is the kind of man, because of his favoritism, is the kind of man that is not leading his family well. He's not leading his family saying, here, right now, here is, here is me leading you. Let me show you and take you to a place where there is bread in the midst of famine. He's passive and not leading. Why? This habit of favoritism, this habit of putting all his love and affection only on one particular son has transformed him into the kind of person he is now. One of my favorite biblical scholars, G.K. Beale, has this great little book with the title of it, We Become What We Worship. And what Beale would argue and what Beale would say is really just what the scriptures say, is that our habits of worship transform us. The things that we hold dear, the things that we cling to, the things that we have affection for, the things that we give our adoration to, are in what many ways transform our hearts, our desires, and our actions. And you might be wondering, okay, so what does this have to do with what Jacob is doing? The case I want to make to you is what Jacob's favoritism is, is actually beneath it. It's actually worship. What Jacob is doing in this moment is worshiping, adoring his son more than anything else. It's what is holding him back. It's what's hindering this family. And on top of that, what I also want you to see is that worship is not just something religious people do. See, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You don't identify as a follower of Jesus. I mean, first, just we're so grateful and thankful that you've taken you know, a portion of your Sunday to be here with us. And maybe you're thinking, if that's you, that, you know, worship, that's what those religious people do. I kind of do my own thing. But that's what you Christians do. You guys worship on Sundays. But for all of us here in the room this morning, maybe you've heard this before, but I want to convince you that worship is not just a religious thing or even a Christian thing. It's a human thing. All of us worship. And what we worship transforms us, has a transformative effect on our life. You know, the late David Foster Wallace gave this fairly famous commencement address back in 2005 to a bunch of young college students headed off into the workforce. Now, as far as we can tell, Wallace was not a professing Christian, but I want to read a little bit of this commencement address to you because although he wasn't a follower of Jesus, as far as we can tell, he speaks with such clarity and insight into the human condition, in particular with this idea of everybody worships. Take a look. Everybody worships, he says. The only choice we get is what we worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. 
If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual lure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need even more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. It's that they are unconscious. They are default settings. He's in many ways echoing what the scriptures would teach, in many ways echoing what Calvin himself said, that the human heart is an idol factory. This is what we do as humans in and of ourselves. We are in many ways designed to worship. The question again is, who or what will we worship? And what I want you to see from this passage is that Jacob's favoritism, yes, it's favoritism, but underneath that is worship. It's what Jacob is holding most dear. It's what all his affection is going to. Jacob's sin problem is a worship problem. And may I just submit to all of us this morning that what hinders us, what often can hinder us from experiencing that transformative work of, taking, of God taking us from famine to feast is our own grip of our own idols, of the things that we think we have to have, the things that we want to devote our affection and love and adoration to that are something other than God himself. So what is that for you? What hinders you? What slows you down from truly experiencing and knowing that work that God wants to do of taking you from places of famine to a place of feasting? What is that? Oftentimes, it's that very thing we think we need to have, that thing that we think we need to keep and hold on to that is hindering us from experiencing the work that God wants to do in our lives. So what hinders us, number one? Second question, though, I want us to ask is what needs to happen? What needs to happen? What needs to happen for you and I to experience and go on this journey of transformation that God wants to do in all of our hearts and lives? Take a look at verse 14. This is Jacob speaking and praying. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. As for me, I am bereaved of my children. If I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Although Jacob has this worship problem going on, he does come to a place here in the text where he basically just says, you know, may God Almighty have mercy upon you. He recognizes, at least at a deep sense, that the only answer that he can come up with, the only thing that can solve what's going to happen is the mercy of God across this family and across this whole situation. And he evokes the name of God in this beautiful and profound sense, saying, may God Almighty have mercy upon you. That phrase, that, that name, God Almighty, is the Hebrew El Shaddai. The name of God that speaks to God's power, God's covenant, his power to keep his covenant promises to his people. Biblical scholar, one of my favorites on Genesis, Gordon Wenham, says this about the name El Shaddai. Shaddai evokes the idea that God is able to make the barren fertile, and to fulfill his promises. El Shaddai is the, the God who so constrains nature that it does his will. 
And this is the name of God that Jacob invokes. This is the name that, that Jacob cries out saying, may God Almighty, may El Shaddai have mercy upon us. And that this is what needs to happen in Jacob's life in order for this family to experience the transformation and the journey that God wants to take them on. And as you see and continue with the story, notice, notice in verse 20 this. The brothers said, as they arrive in Egypt, oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks. And there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money full in weight. So we have brought it again with us. And we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. He replied, this is, this is Joseph's servant or, or master. Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Now, back up in verse 20, there's this little word that I want you to notice. Two letters, the word O, O-H. It's a very common phrase that happens throughout the Hebrew Bible, but in this moment in particular and throughout the rest of the Hebrew Bible, it's used in these moments where people recognize their need for mercy. Oh Lord, would you, would you not do this terrible thing to us? And would you recognize and would you help us? Would you give us mercy in this moment? We don't know where this grain came from. It's not our fault. The brothers are, are, are recognizing their own need for mercy. Later on in the, the text, later on in the scriptures, Moses before God at, at Mount Sinai. Oh, would you please send someone else, Moses says. The righteous woman in the presence of King Solomon, who really knows whose baby this baby really belongs to, says before Solomon, oh, would you not kill the baby and allow the baby to live? The pattern we're seeing here in this passage and throughout the Hebrew Bible is simply this. That in these moments when someone cries out with, oh, that they're recognizing their own need for mercy. And what we see here in this story is that they're actually receiving the mercy that Jacob prayed for back in verse 14. That God Almighty himself is answering Jacob's prayer. This is what needs to happen in Jacob's life and the family's life. Not just a theoretical, theological knowledge of God's mercy, but a tangible, profound encounter with the mercy of God. A tangible experience of knowing, of not just believing, but knowing in an experiential way the mercy of God in one's life. What Jacob doesn't need just by itself is just, oh yeah, I agree theologically about the name of God it has something to do with mercy. No, he needs to experience it. This family needs to know the mercy of God for themselves. And friends, may I suggest to us this morning that for us to experience what God has for us, that each of us in this room, you need to not just know the right theological answer about how God is merciful. You need to know and experience the mercy of God in your life for yourself. That it can't just stay up high in the clouds, but it has to land deep within your heart to know and believe and experience that El Shaddai, God Almighty, wants to show you mercy and has shown you mercy. What hinders this family? What hinders the journey that God wants to take us on off and the things we hold on to? What needs to happen? Each of us personally needs to experience and know the mercy of God for ourselves in our lives, to tangibly know that and experience that. But third, 
Third question I want us to ask, and perhaps maybe the most important question. What do we receive? What do we receive? Take a look at verse 29 with me, towards the end. The text reads this, And he, that's Joseph, lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered the chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. Now, it's pretty clear. Joseph is experiencing a ton of emotion in this moment. He's seeing Benjamin. He has to withdraw. It's hard for him to control himself. I mean, if you can't just imagine being Joseph in that moment, what that would feel like, what that would be like for him. But then also think about the brothers. The text tells us that somehow they're all lined up in birth order as they're being seated. And imagine what that moment's like, right? Like, how does this guy know how old we are? Something's up here. Perhaps they're recognizing there's, there's more to the story than what we can actually see with our own eyes. But verse 34 says this. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion, check this out. This is Benjamin's portion was five times as much as theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. What's that about? Benjamin's portion is five times as much as the other brothers. Now think about the brothers for a moment. What are the brothers receiving in this moment? What do the brothers deserve in this moment, right? They're coming before the, the very man that they have betrayed, that they have hurt, and Joseph sees them. Joseph knows who they are. They don't know who he is. What do these brothers deserve? They deserve not this, right? These brothers are receiving radical grace from their enemy that Joseph himself is showing radical grace and giving and dispensing radical grace to his own brothers, the ones that have betrayed and hurt him. And... On top of that, verse 34 said that Benjamin is receiving five times as much as the rest of the brothers. And the brothers are delightful and they're happy and they're celebrating with Benjamin. Something has changed. Because if you think about it, this more than likely would not have happened years ago. In Genesis 37, we read of a story of the older brothers having a meal on top of the very pit where their favored younger brother was essentially left to die. Here in Genesis 43, the elder brothers are having a meal in the presence of another favored brother. But this time, they're celebrating. This time, they're joyful. This time, they are able to, to be at peace and be at home and to actually celebrate what's happening in Benjamin's life. Something has changed. The brothers have received radical grace. And radical grace has transformed the brothers, and radical grace, friends, is what is going to sustain the brothers. Again, back at the very beginning of this Joseph story, the brothers, they were themselves famished. They were famished for attention, famished by a sense of bitterness and envy and jealousy for what their younger brother Joseph was receiving. 
And the famished state of their soul propelled them into the evil and vile actions that they committed. Their famished souls and their famished actions gave all the indicators of of one who is showing insecurity. Someone plagued by a deep sense of insecurity. That person has more. That person has it together. That person's getting more than what I'm getting. Earlier in the story, that's where the brothers were at. A place of deep insecurity that caused them to promote themselves over Joseph, that caused them to do what they did to him. But now in the presence of radical grace, they're showing security. They're showing that they're okay and they've made peace with who they are and what their younger brother's receiving. But I don't know about you, but can you relate to that feeling, that sense of being famished for attention, being famished by a sense of bitterness and envy? Can you relate a little bit to those feelings of insecurity that sometimes creep up when you might see or notice someone else getting more or having more or achieving more? You know, one of the things about feeling insecure or those, those feelings of insecurity is that sometimes they're some of the most easiest things to hide. It's really easy to pretend, because I think, let me say this, we, we all kind of know people that visibly demonstrate like, they're just really insecure. And there's some obvious ways that that can happen, right? Always bragging about their achievements, always bragging about what they did in the past, and kind of having this kind of arrogant sort of attitude. And it's going to be very obvious. Oh, that person's insecure. But there's a deeper level of being famished for attention and displaying insecurity that's actually easier to hide. Easier to pretend like you have it all put together, but deep down in your heart, there's some bitterness. It's hard for you to kind of engage with some people that you might think have more than you because it's that sense of insecurity that's kind of holding you back. Or there's those moments where you might be in a small group setting and you're, you're kind of praying together in a group and there's something in your heart that you're trying to get the prayer perfectly formulated before you actually speak the prayer because maybe there's some insecurity in there because you want to be seen as kind of spiritual or kind of knowing what you're, you're doing in that moment. Or you're with your GC and you're conversing and discussing the scriptures and what you think you have to say isn't as, as good as what the person next to you has to say so you withhold back from actually sharing in that moment. I mean, these are kind of subtle, small ways that we're all tempted in various ways to have a sense of insecurity, to, to want to withhold. Because, friends, we all have this desire to have some sort of attention, some sort of affirmation and affection. Christian psychologist Kurt Thompson says that we are all born looking for someone looking for us. And all he's pointing out there is the very simple human reality that, in a good sense, we all crave and need attention. We all need someone to see us and to love us and to know us, and that is a good thing. But what can happen, and what often does happen, is that sin creeps in, and sin distorts that God-given desire so that we become more and more the kinds of people apart from God that crave that attention, that crave that fame, that crave that sort of affirmation in an unhealthy sense, and that begins to breed and fester and grow 
into more and more insecurity. And if we're not careful, and if we're not slowing down and asking good questions about our heart motives, it's really easy to allow that to fester and to grow. One person that I've seen from a distance, I think that really modeled this well, was the late professor Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard was an author, writer, philosopher, taught at USC for a number of years. And he tells this story of one time giving a lecture to you know, probably 100, 200 college students about how he's lecturing about something very kind of debatable and very intense about philosophy or whatnot and, the, and the, how it intersects with the Christian faith. And towards the end of the lecture, one of the students in the class kind of stands up and kind of offers this big rebuttal to what Professor Willard was saying. And it, in that moment, it was clearly wrong what the student was saying, but Dallas, Professor Dallas Willard, closes his lecture notes and says, well, that's a good place to stop for now. A few days later, someone comes up to him and asks Dr. Willard, Dr. Willard, why didn't you like, combat what that student was saying? Like, you were clearly right. Everyone in the room knew it. And Dr. Willard pauses and, and says, you know what? I'm practicing the discipline of not having to have the last word. I think there's something beautiful about that that demonstrates the security that he had in that moment. I don't have to one-up that person. I don't have to say something just to kind of make myself to the rest of the room know that I'm, you know, smarter. I mean, he's the one with the PhD, right? He's clearly the brightest one in the room. But there's a freedom that happens when someone has that security that doesn't have to, like, one-up that person that doesn't have to make that comment, make that insight, just to be seen and known as someone who is perhaps better. And friends, what changes that insecurity in our hearts? What changes us and moves us from a place where we're no longer famished for attention, but actually secure in who we are and what Christ has done for us? Friends, it's radical grace. It's the grace that we are invited to receive from him. And sometimes we kind of think about, okay, this work of transformation God wants to do, sometimes it's easy to kind of look back on our lives and go, how come I'm not transforming faster than how I think I should be? To think, you know, why am I not further along in this journey? But friends, if you think about it for a moment, you're not the same person you were a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. Why? Because the grace of God is working in each of our lives. That by God's grace, you're not the same person you were a year ago or five years ago. But the same thing is true with the brothers, right? The brothers are not the same people they were back in Genesis 37. The grace of God has worked and transformed their lives where they're not just now feasting physically, but their hearts themselves are feasting spiritually. That there's a deep heart work that's happened in the lives of these brothers, and the question that we might ask ourselves is, how is that change possible for us? How is that change possible for you and for me? How might we experience this same radical grace that these brothers have experienced? Because I've mentioned this again multiple times already. The brothers are receiving radical grace from Joseph. They're receiving an invitation at the table of the one that they've betrayed. That Joseph is showing radical grace to his enemies. But here's the thing, the brothers have no idea who, from whom they're receiving this grace from. The brothers have no idea who is the one giving this grace. The brothers have no idea, no personal connection with the one showing them this grace in this moment. Not so with us. 
Friends, we know the one who has shown us grace. We know the one who has demonstrated his love and his mercy and affection for us. We know the one who has revealed himself to us and shown us and dispensed radical grace for you and for me. Friends, the Lord Jesus Christ takes us from places of famine to feasting because of his radical grace. Jesus himself takes on human flesh, lives a full, joyful, obedient life, feasting on the mercy of God, dies a horrific death on the cross and rises from the grave three days later. And after his resurrection, the disciples see and they realize and they recognize that him alone, Christ alone, is truly the bread of life that Jesus himself truly is Lord and that he is the one worthy of our worship and adoration, that they recognize that it's because of his mercy alone that I need to fall on my face and repent and believe and live my life for him, that the radical grace of God in and through the cross and resurrection of Christ takes you and me, transforms you and me from people famished and longing to feasting in the presence of God. Friends, to the degree that you behold and recognize and see the radical grace given to you, you no longer become this person that's famished and starving and insecure. To the degree that you behold and recognize the radical grace freely given to you, you have what Thomas Chalmers says, the expulsive power of a new affection that those old things that you used to worship, those old idols that you used to cling so dearly to begin to fade away in comparison to the beauty and the, the love and the majesty of who Christ is. And to the degree that you receive and behold the radical grace that Christ offers you and me is to the degree that you recognize your need for mercy, your continual need for mercy, recognizing and freeing you to become a person that is able to be vulnerable, able to be honest, able to recognize your own shortcomings in the presence of others. And to the degree that you behold and see the beauty of Christ, the radical grace that Christ offers you, frees you to become the kind of person who no longer has a famished soul starving for attention, who is free and secure in who Christ has made you and how Christ has gifted you. Friends, an improper view of grace looks out into the world and sees what that person has and what that person has and says, why don't I have that? Why don't I have that lifestyle, that job, that kind of family? But see, the radical grace of God transforms us into the kinds of people that not only recognize what Christ has done for me and is celebratory about that and is joyful about that, but looks out into the world and sees what Christ is doing in other people. And even if it's more, and especially when it's more, at least in comparison, celebrates and is grateful and sees the blessing of God on others as not like that's God being unfair, but actually is joyful in that moment. That's what's happening with these brothers. They're able to see the portion that Benjamin has five times as much and they're joyful and they're celebratory and they're okay with that. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that God takes our famished hearts, starving for attention, and frees us and gives us a, a security in him where we become more and more as we behold the beauty and the grace of Christ for us and through us and, and to us. We become the kinds of people that have this robust security, knowing that we are loved by him.
But friends, it gets even better than this. The Apostle John tells us there is coming a day where we will see him, Jesus Christ, face to face. There is coming a day where we will see and know Christ even more fully than we do right now. That as much as we get to see and believe and love Christ now, there's more of Christ to be had in the future. There's more of Christ to see and to know that one day each of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, will stand before him and he will say to us by God's grace, well done, good and faithful servant. And we will know him, the Bible says, for who he truly is. There's coming a day, the Bible tells us, that we will feast with the best wine and the best meat in his presence. That there is coming a day where we will feast in his presence, feast in his house. He will wipe away every tear. And friends, that that future hope motivates us now to holy living. That future hope of one day seeing him face to face, knowing him even more fully now, motivates you and I, transforms you and I in the present, anchoring us now in the reality that one day we will be fully transformed. One day we will fully experience even more abundant grace in his presence. That we will feast in his house, that we will weep no more one day. That is the hope. That is the the joy that you and I, that we have together this morning. So friends, what hinders us from experiencing God's transforming work, that work of taking us from famine to feast? Well, it's often those things that we want to close our fists and hold on to tightly. Those things that, if we're honest, we're actually worshiping in our hearts. What needs to happen in a radical encounter with the mercy of God, an experiential encounter with God's mercy, and what do we receive? infinitely more grace, radical grace, than we ever dare to dream or hope or imagine. Father, we're grateful for the work that you're doing in each of our hearts and each of our lives. God, we're grateful for who you are and, and what you've done. God, thank you, in, even in the midst of our own foolishness and sin and idolatry, Lord, that you have pursued us God, that you have rescued us. So God, I pray that just right now in this moment, you would again remind us of your grace. Remind us of what you've done for us. Anchor us deep within your promises this morning. Help us to better see and to know and adore you today. So Jesus, we love you only because you first loved us. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.